My name is Matt Hardy. Most of you know that. Um, we're happy to be here today. Uh, last Sunday, I had the opportunity to preach in uh, Pineda, our planting church uh, down south, and it was a privilege and it was um, fun to do, but there's something even more special about being here today with the people I'm serving with and the people that we're living with and just being with and being home today. So uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here. Um, we're continuing our series as you know, in the book of 12, the Minor Prophets, and today we're in Jonah. And uh, I, I hope you've found these Minor Prophets uh, to be useful, to be applicable to our um, daily lives. These, these books were written almost 3,000 years ago, some of them, and, and yet they seem so relevant uh, in so many ways to us today. Um, today is, today's Minor Prophet is Jonah, and it is probably one of the most well-known of the Minor Prophets. Not many other Minor Prophets have a Veggie Tales movie dedicated to them, um, but a lot of people know at least a little bit about Jonah, and I hope we learn a lot more depth about Jonah today. I think uh, most people could tell you that Jonah is about a prophet and a whale, right? And if, if you have a lot of biblical knowledge, you know it's not a whale, it's a great fish, right? The Bible doesn't say it's a whale, right? So... And again, I, I hope what we see in, in Jonah today is something more than that. There's a lot of things we could see in Jonah and a lot of different themes that run throughout. Uh, there's the theme of God's will versus man's will, uh, God's sovereignty and salvation. It's a story about pride and, and sin and nationalism. My hope is, though, what we see is, is a, a great God, a sovereign God, who uses broken people to do beautiful things, right? And there's the key verse, uh, Otto read it early, earlier, that I want us to keep in mind as we, as we go through this uh, text, and I'm going to reference it a lot. And it's, it's the last line there of Jonah 2.9, 2, and it says, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's really a, a key verse for us today. And join me in prayer before we uh, dive in. God, I thank you for this opportunity again to sit under your word, uh, Lord, to... Um, to see what you'd have for us in this ancient text that you've preserved for us all these years. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts and open our eyes, remove the scales from our eyes, and help us uh, lean in and reveal sin where there's sin, and Lord, reveal growth where there's growth. Uh, God, show us your grace today. Lord, I pray that you keep Christ uh, preeminent uh, this morning in our hearts, in our minds, in my speaking. God, in I pray that your word would be effective, Lord, that it's your word, Lord, that people would believe your word and not my word. And God, just uh, pray for you to do that today because we can't, uh, Lord, we need you to do that. Be with us. Pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so as, you, as we read Jonah and as we dig into Jonah, one of the first things we notice is that Jonah is different from most of the other minor prophets, right? It just reads differently. Most of the prophetic books are full of prophets that speak God's words throughout the book. You see it over, the Lord says, the Lord says, the Lord says, all throughout the, all throughout the prophets. And Jonah, what we see is a narrative story, kind of a biography story, and we, we think it's an autobiography story, meaning we think Jonah most likely wrote this. And in this narrative story, we're told more about the prophet than we are about what God would have him say, Right? In fact, the message, the whole message that Jonah delivers 
is found in one verse. It's found in uh, chapter 3, verse 4, and it says, uh, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So that's the prophetic message that's in this minor prophet. It's eight simple words of warning, right? It's eight words that Jonah almost dies not to say, right? We have a little bit of information uh, of Jonah outside of the book of Jonah. In 2 Kings 14, 23 through 27, I'm not going to read it today. There's a lot, of, a lot in there and a lot of names and uh, things and a lot of kings and sons of kings. And we see Jonah's name mentioned right in the middle. And it's in reference to some military campaigns that were going on at the time of taking back land and uh, some rather aggressive military campaigns. And the same time frame, the same king is also referenced in Amos and Hosea, who denounced the king. And we have some records that Jonah was for, for, the, for the activity that was going on. So he was set apart in that way. There's another important consideration before we look at Jonah today, and that is literary style. What we have to take that into account before you read any book of the Bible. What is the literary style of the book? Maybe we don't always do that, but it is important. How do we read the story? Do we read it as a parable, right, as an example, or do we read it literally as an historic account? Was there a real fish that swallowed a real man for three days and vomited out, and he went to Nineveh, right? So everything we have points to that, that yes, this is a literal historic account of events that happened. Right? There's no indication in this text itself, and we'll see that Christ actually references Jonah in the New Testament, and there's no indication of that, that anything says that this is a parable. So this, we have to take this as a literal historic account. And Joel preached on uh, Nahum last week, so we kind of did the the sequel before the original. Uh, so we have, some, we have some interesting context to have in, in our head as we listen to, to Jonah. And I think it'll bring about some great questions. Um, that Nahum took place about 100 years after Jonah. So that's some background. So we're going we're gonna to jump in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 1. And it should be a familiar opening, right? It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, just like the word of the Lord came to Joel, the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the word of the Lord came to Micah, right? We see this, the word of the Lord. We actually see it a hundred times in the Old Testament, the word of the Lord. And, and I, I think we can forget how amazing that is. The word of Yahweh, creator God, chose to be spoken into the ears of a human, Right? He chose people, and we forget what a privilege that was. Right? Jonah had this unique privilege that God spoke to him, and he was even in position to speak that word to kings, and kings listened to him. He was in a privileged position. And in this instance, the, the word of the Lord gives Jonah a very simple, very direct command. He says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up against me. All right, arise and go to Nineveh. Simple enough. All right. Now, Nineveh was a major city. At, at one point in world history, for about 50 years, it was the largest city in the world. Right? It was this major city, and it was a major city in Assyria. Right? And Assyria was not a nice place. 
to be. They were a cruel and evil uh, empire. There's a lot of records of how their cruelty and uh, just how evil they were, how evil they were. They were violent and they were murderous, and their military was more advanced than any other of the militaries around them. They had iron weapons while everyone else had bronze weapons. They had chariots and everyone else just had horses, right? So when they would march through an army, it was, it was devastating. One of the other things they always wanted to do, uh, the Assyrians, was to, was to conquer an enemy in a way that no one else would want to fight them, right? They wanted their name, their reputation uh, to, be, to be out there to prevent people from uprising. And, and they were already, at this point in Jonah, not friends of Israel. They were enforcing taxes. Uh, they were conquering all the lands uh, right around Israel, right? Um, 50 or 60 years after Jonah, they actually conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, and they have possession of that. So that's some background on Nineveh, where God is asking Jonah to go. And Jonah, we see, is this, this privileged, right, this experienced prophet. He's been around for a while. He hears the word of the Lord. The Lord says, arise and go. And Jonah says, nope, right? He says, he's not only says no, he goes in the opposite direction, right? God, and to paraphrase uh, Man Overboard, a, a book I leaned on by Sinclair Ferguson, Jonah's objection, though, was not intellectual. He clearly understood what was being asked of him. He just didn't want to do it, right? He wasn't confused, His will and the Lord's will clashed. Jonah tells us later the reason he ran. And we see he ran to a local port and he found a boat going to Tarshish, which is in Spain. Nineveh was in Iraq and he was in Israel and he went to Spain. So you couldn't go more opposite than what Jonah did right there. There's There's a story that Charles Spurgeon tells he described a school friend who had a violent temper, and he'd get angry, and when the school friend would get angry, he would pick something up and throw it, right? What Spurgeon said was this. He said, what struck me forcibly was not that he got angry, nor that he threw something that, when he was angry, but that when he was angry, there was always something available to throw, right? Jonah was looking to run, and there just happened to be a boat going to Tarshish, right? There happened to be a boat going in the opposite direction. It's funny that when we're looking to run from God, there always seems to be something convenient to help us on our way. But we have to be careful reading into, into convenient circumstances as God's blessings, right, or signs. There's a lot there, but we've got to keep moving on. We see Jonah put his plan into action. He buys a ticket with some pagan sailors, and he heads west instead of east, in hopes of leaving the presence of the Lord. And again, it seems there's a battle between Jonah's will and God's will, and this time it's a physical battle. Almost immediately, we see a massive storm whip up. I think right now it's easy for us to imagine what a massive tempest might look like. We just had one of the biggest ones hit us a couple of weeks ago, right? They said there was 24-foot waves off, off the coast of Fort Myers. So I don't know what this tempest was, if it was like Ian or not, but it was mighty. Right, it, was, it was big enough that these experienced sailors were afraid. They were very afraid. And they were afraid their boat was going to be destroyed. So they were scared. And they begin to pray. And these guys pray to anybody, right? Anything they can think of, they're praying to. Any of their idols, they're praying to. 
And finally, we see the captain go downstairs, and we see him echo the words of the Lord, and he says to Jonah, arise. Right? And, and the sailors come up with a plan, and they said, we're going to throw some dice, and we're going to see who's responsible for this, for this storm, for what happens here. And they throw the dice, and it just happens to land on Jonah, right? And we know why it happens to land on Jonah. We, we read Proverbs 16.33 tells us, it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord, right? It's a small reminder that even in the middle of the storm, in the middle of Jonah's failings, the Lord is sovereign, and he's in control of everything that's happening. That boat is being rocked and torn about, and there's a throw of the dice, and it lands just where the Lord would have it, just where the Lord would have it land. God is still in complete control. In verse 8 and 9, the sailors said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and what people are you? And he said to them, Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. All right, so they ask him a lot of questions, and he answers all of them but one. They ask him, what is your occupation? But he doesn't respond with, I'm a prophet. Because right, Jonah knows he's not behaving like a prophet right now. He's doing the opposite of what a prophet would do. He knew he had failed. And these, these, these pagan sailors do something courageous. They They keep rowing, and they're struggling to save Jonah. Even as we see, Jonah isn't very interested in saving himself. And we see something even more amazing in verse 14. These pagan sailors get on their knees, and they begin to pray to Yahweh. They begin to pray to Jonah's God, right? And they say, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And then they do what Jonah asks and they pick him up, and they throw him in the sea, and everything calms down immediately, right? The sea ceased from its raging. And in six, verse 16, we see the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows, right? There's a lot happening in this first chapter. It's easy to read through it if you're reading the whole story or reading the whole Bible at the time and skip through and not, not see some of the stuff, and I've done it myself. So I want to take a minute and just talk about a few of these things. This tempest, right, this mighty storm that was sent uh, after Jonah, the Lord sent this, this tempest. The Lord sends all storms, right? This storm in particular was sent because of Jonah's sin, and sin, as it often does, had widespread consequences, right? I don't think Jonah intended for his sin to put the sailors' lives in danger, but it did. It almost cost them their lives. I want to be careful and I want to be clear here. I'm not saying that all storms are caused by sin, but sin causes storms in our life. Does that make sense? Ian didn't hit Fort Myers because Fort Myers was particularly sinful, right? What Scripture shows us, though, is that sin causes storms in our life. So sin causes storm, but not all storms are caused by sin. But there was an intended consequence of the storm that Jonah didn't uh, realize, and it was to see these pagan sailors come to salvation. The storm, Jonah's sin was used to bring this group of pagan sailors 
to understand and know and fear the one true and living God. Right? And we see that they did. In the storm, the casting of a lot, again, shows us God is in complete control here. The former pagans became sons of God, not because of Jonah, but in spite of him. They knew he was running away from God. Right? What a witness that is. He's running away. God's using Jonah's sin, his failings, his storm, and he saves these sailors. God will accomplish what he desires with or without our cooperation. We read it earlier, or Otto read it earlier. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God is using Jonah to save these people, and God uses all sorts of things to accomplish his will. But there's a warning in that too. Just because God is using you doesn't mean you're in a proper relationship with God. We get to verse 17, and that's what most of the world knows about the book of Jonah. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Right? It's kind of a challenging verse. It's outside of our experience. Right? We don't see men swallowed up by fish and spit up on other beaches three days later. Right? This is what I was talking about earlier. We could read this as a parable. Right? It doesn't make the book of Jonah useless but it makes the book of Jonah different, right? Everything here points to an actual event that happened. We see in chapter 12 of Matthew, Christ references Jonah. Chapter 12, verse 38, he says this, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Right, so if, if it is a parable, it would be odd for Christ to compare an actual event that's going to happen to a story about a fake event that didn't happen. And if we believe Genesis 1.1 that God created the heavens and the earth, then God making a fish swallow somebody is pretty easy to believe as well. And finally, uh, Sinclair Ferguson had this to say, we have to be careful that we don't get so wrapped up in a great fish that we miss a great God, right? So we turn to, we turn to chapter 2, and we see Jonah in his sin plummeting down into the sea. I'm guessing assured of his death at this point. And the Lord exercises his salvation once again. If we take away verse 1 from chapter 2, it reads like any psalm of lament. It would fit right into the psalms, and it was probably informed by the psalms. We see Jonah here in prayer, right? In prayer, he's in the presence of the Lord. He was fleeing the presence of the Lord, and now drowning, he seeks the presence of the Lord. He's returned to it, and we see this beautiful prayer of a broken, contrite heart. And it would appear that God's wrath on Jonah is actually grace. It takes wrath. If it takes wrath to turn a wayward sheep back to the flock, then that is a merciful wrath. We can see the prayer taking shape and the imagery of Jonah plummeting deeper and downward and downward. 
He uses the words like, I'm in the belly of Sheol, into the deep, into the heart of the seas, surrounded by the flood, waves over his head. There's a sense of impending doom. And there in verse 4, Jonah recognizes something uh, even more important than the trial he was in. He was recognizing that he was driven out of your sight. He was out of the presence of the Lord. He had run away from the presence of the Lord. All he wanted to do in chapter 1 was be out of the presence of the Lord. And, and finally, drowning in the Mediterranean, he realizes that was a mistake. I need to be in the presence of the Lord. What he's longing is, is to look at the presence, the holy temple. Right? This is merciful wrath. It took Jonah to be drowned, plummeting, sinking into the cold, dark water to realize what he was fleeing from was the very and only thing that could save him. In verse 7, we see it clearly. He says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Right? God was exercising grace by showing Jonah that Jonah's greatest need was him, was God. His place was to be in God's presence. God was reminding Jonah that Jonah needed mercy. In doing so, he was preparing him and equipping him to accomplish what he had set out for him in the beginning. Drowning rarely feels like grace when we're drowning. The storms are hard to recognize as acts of mercy when we're in the storm. But we have to be careful that we don't overlook what the Lord is doing in and through them. Remember Romans 8:28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, right? Jonah was literally called by God for a purpose. And the Lord is working out the sin, the storm, the drowning, all for Jonah's good. In verse 9, again, we come to that beautiful truth that salvation belongs to the Lord. I don't know if Jonah meant his salvation at this point or all salvation, but we know all salvation belongs to the Lord. The salvation of the sailors, the salvation of Jonah, the salvation of Nineveh, right? They all belong to the Lord. In spite of what's happening, in spite of Jonah's failings, in spite of his sin, in spite of his refusal to go, it belongs to the Lord. So we read, we finish chapter 2, and, and we see this, this beautiful story, and we see this beautiful contrite heart. Jonah's a broken man, and he's returned to the presence of the Lord. And if, and if you know the story... And if you've uh, read it before, you know, we see Jonah quickly reverts, right? Jonah, again, by the end of this book, is, is arguing with God. And so it brings a question, at least to my heart when I read it, was this prayer a legitimate prayer, right? It seems like it. Everything in there seems legitimate. But he goes so quickly back to reverting into his old ways, Right? But it's easy to fall into this trap when we read the Old Testament for our own hearts. We, we, we read of, how can we read these stories and we say, how can Israel, how can David, how can Noah, how can all these examples of sin and sin and sin after God doing a mighty work? How do the Israelites complain about meat after God split the sea and destroyed an army and led them out of captivity? Right? I remember Tracy reading the Old Testament all the way through and, and remarking, these Israelites are stupid. Like they, just, they just keep 
doing the same things over and over again. Right? Isn't that our story, though? Don't we share in that story? Look at the works the Lord has done in us and around us, and how quickly it is before we struggle, before we stumble, before we falter again. The Lord was using this moment like he uses all the moments, and he was using everything around Jonah to lead him and shape him, not because Jonah was obedient, not because Jonah didn't sin. The Lord had a purpose for Jonah and a purpose for this story, and that's why we're reading it today, 2,700 years after it was written. And the chap- chapter 2 ends, and it says, the word of the Lord came a second time. I'm sorry, chapter 2 uh, ends, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and the fish was more obedient than Jonah, and it did what it was told, and it vomited Jonah out onto the beach. That sounds like fun. Chapter 3 starts with more grace, right? The word of the Lord came a second time. So Jonah does his best to get away, and the Lord comes again. He tries to hide, and the Lord comes again. What kind of God is that, right, that would do that, just seek after and after? Psalms 86.15 tells us, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Micah 7.18 continues, Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in his steadfast love. This is our God. This is Yahweh. This is a God who delights in steadfast love. Jonah is the beneficiary of that right now. So Jonah obeys this time, and he walks one day into Nineveh, into a three-day journey across, and he makes this simple proclamation in verse 4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Right? Again, this is is all of the proclamation he makes. These eight simple words, stunningly terse, right? The next verse, though, is more shocking, and it says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. Wow. The people of Nineveh believed God. Not Jonah. It doesn't say the people of Nineveh believed Jonah. It said the people of Nineveh believed God. In eight words, it was enough. And immediately there was a legitimate revival in Nineveh. Something in Jonah had to die for him to walk in there and even say those eight words. And he spoke those words powerfully. He must have been powerfully The Lord had been working on Jonah in a powerful way. John Owen has this to say about proclaiming the word. He says, The word can only come with power to our hearers when it has come with power to our own hearts. Jonah's suffering was not in vain. This absolutely wicked city of death and destruction and outright evil experienced legitimate, absolute revival. It happened out of the death of self. Right, in Jonah, however momentary it may have been. That's a theme that runs the entirety of Scripture, dying to self and dying for others. And this was a genuine repentance. It took place from the castle all the way down to the cows. Right? The Ninevites heard a word of warning of the danger that they were in, and they believed it. They believed God. 
do we believe the word when it speaks of the danger to our eternal souls? Do I preach as though there are people in this room who might be overthrown in 40 days? Flipping back to Matthew 12, verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. It's an explicit warning. These wicked Ninevites repented at the preaching of a broken prophet. We have Christ. We have his word. We have his spirit. We have so much more. We have such a better prophet in Christ than Jonah. The danger for the unbeliever today is every bit as the danger was real for the Ninevites then. Do we believe it? Will we be as bold as Jonah in declaring it? Right. And we see the chapter close with God relenting. The destruction that promised was real. God uses the word overthrown. It's the same word he used when he talked about Sodom and Gomorrah. We see it in Nahum. They, they are eventually overthrown. The destruction is real. That was coming for Nineveh unless there was genuine repentance. So the question comes up, did God change his mind, right? That's a good question. It's been raised in our CG more than once as we've gone over these prophets. And there was a note in my study from this ESV study Bible, and I think it helps. It says, from a temporal perspective, God responds to human action. From what we see, it looks like God responds to human action. From an eternal perspective, God chooses the means, in this case, human repenting, as well as the end, divine relenting. So God did not change his mind. It was his plan that this would happen all along. He would use the means of Nineveh's repentance to bring about his relenting. And that's still a lot to, to wrap our heads around because we, we don't think like that. We can't see the end from the beginning, but God does. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and the Lord has now seen fit to save the sailors Jonah and Nineveh. And as we go into chapter 4, we see, And celebration broke out, and Jonah was filled with joy as the 120,000 people who were destined to die in eternal torment were spared. No, that's actually not what it says. That's what I would like it to say, right? That's what it should say. That's what, if I was writing the book, that's what it would say. But it's the word of the Lord and not the word of Matt. Thank God. Can you imagine as a, as a Christian, or as a pastor, as a preacher of the word, walking into a major city like New York or L.A. or Bangkok or anywhere in the world, and, and you preach eight words and there's a massive revival. Everyone from the mayor to the homeless guy in the street and everyone in between is saved, and genuine repentance breaks out, right? And they're spared from annihilation. Their souls are rescued from hell. Man, like, how, how pumped would we be? How excited would we be? If that happened in Cape Canaveral tomorrow, we would be pumped, right? It would be amazing. But we see Jonah here, and he's not. And perhaps he was worried, I don't know, about his reputation as a traitor prophet if he came and brought the word and saved these vicious, evil people. Um, we're not sure. But Jonah would rather die than to see the Lord offer these people the same grace he was just offered a couple days ago. And we see another prayer. We see another prayer in in chapter 4. And it's a much different prayer than what we see in chapter 2. It's an angry prayer. We see Jonah blaming God for his running away. And we see Jonah take the very attributes of God that saved him 
and used them as an accusation against God's very character. He goes on and he begs God to take the very life that God had just spared from the depths. He was praising God for saving his life in chapter 2, and now he's asking God to take it in chapter 4. And the Lord, in his long-suffering patience, asks Jonah a question, and he says, Do you do well to be angry? And I picture Jonah walking off in a huff. He finds a hill, and he plops down on this hill, and he waits, and he hopes. Maybe it's not real repentance. Maybe God will still destroy Nineveh. Maybe God would change his mind. And he's sitting there, and he's uncomfortable, and it's hot. And the Lord extends grace, and he appoints a vine to grow over Jonah and extend him some shade. In verse 6, Jonah was exceedingly glad, just like he was exceedingly displeased earlier in verse 1. Same word. Angry at the grace shown to others, glad at the grace shown to him. Jonah falls asleep in what I imagine was a good mood that night. He has some shade. He has some comfort. And in the next morning, we see God appoints two more things to happen. And they're both meant to make Jonah once again uncomfortable. He appoints a worm to eat the plant. And he appoints a scorching east wind to blow on him and the sun to beat down on him. And once again, we see Jonah throw a fit and act like a petulant child And he asks God once more that he may die. God simply repeats his question, and this time Jonah answers him in verse 9. He says, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Jonah boldly proclaims back to God, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. It's a bold proclamation from an angry little man. We see the book of Jonah close with a question from the Lord to Jonah. And he says, and the Lord said... You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who did not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? It's a simple, straightforward question. You're upset about a plant. Shouldn't you be upset about 120,000 people who were going to die, right? Jonah cursed the life that God so recently rescued. And God simply points out that what should be obvious to Jonah, people are more important than plants, right? That shouldn't have to be a revelation from the Lord for us. And the book ends, right? We don't know what happens. Does Jonah come back around? Uh, There's no follow-up later. We don't hear any more prayers from Jonah. We don't see anything more follow-up between him and the Lord. We're left with the questions. We're left with the questions that it closes with. Do you do well to be angry, and should I not have pity? These are questions left for millennia for us to answer. And so what what are we to do with this book? Like I said, how are these books applicable to us today, so many years later? There's so many themes running through it, and it has so much depth. It raises so many questions. There's warnings and comforts and hope and grace and sin and disobedience. And as far out there as this book may seem sometimes, and as many extremes as we see in it, there's something here that looks a lot like my walk with the Lord. I've never been a prophet, right? I've never been eaten by a fish. 
I do know what it's like to try to hide from God, though. I think a lot of us do. And I know what it's like to feel like I'm drowning and to call out to be in the presence of the Lord and ask for his help. I know what it's like to God to show me mercy and then me to quickly stumble. It's too easy to look at Jonah and write him off as a bad prophet. He was just a failure of a prophet. If we do that, we lose the opportunity to learn from Jonah. I want us to have a few key takeaways today. If you're a child of God and you are in a storm, or perhaps you're over the edge of the boat already and you can feel the deep surrounding you, know that God is in complete control and he is working all things together for your good. If you're suffering what feels like discipline, then thanks be to the Lord. It's proof that he loves you. Proverbs 3.11 says, My sons, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Be weary of his reproof, or be wary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. We're serving a God of unrelenting love. He loved Jonah so much, in order to refine him, he almost killed him. And as much as it must scare us, he loves us that way too. I want to leave us with some good news as well. Jonah was a broken man, right, full of anger and sin, it would seem. A broken man in the dark of a belly of a fish for three days and vomited on shore. He was unwilling to sacrifice his comfort for others, let alone his life. But like I said, we can't write him off. We share too much with Jonah. And just like Jonah wasn't the hope of Nineveh, we can't be our hope either. There's a better Jonah found in the person of Christ. Christ voluntarily took on more than discomfort for us. He laid down his life in our stead. Every time we see Jonah was selfish, Christ was emptying himself. Where Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord, Christ sought it out. Jonah was sinning throughout our story where Christ maintained the law perfectly on our behalf. Jonah stumbles out of three, after three days in the dark and remains broken. Christ emerged from three days in the tomb and re- emerged victorious, victorious over death, victorious over sin. We can never be our own hope, but if we're honest, that's a, that's a lie we struggle with over and over again. We gain clarity and things are good, and then we stumble. We remember, the, remember the God we serve from these beautiful words of another prophet, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in his steadfast love. He delights in his steadfast love. That's good news for us, brothers and sisters, as we struggle. As we struggle. And I want to also leave us with a warning. If you're not in Christ, if you're running from him, are living in unrepentant sin like the Ninevites, there is a judgment coming. We don't have a prophet proclaiming, in 40 days you'll be overthrown. But there is a judgment promised for those who would not submit to his lordship and repent of their sins. And I would urge you, as Paul did, as Paul did the Corinthians, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Our God is long-suffering and patient. 
but it'd be folly to rely on a later day to repent. Tomorrow is not promised, and our lives are like a vapor. Salvation belongs to the Lord, but he's offered it to us as a free gift of grace. Christ has willingly paid the price of our sin and in our stead and granted us his perfect righteousness. Right? If, if this is something that you want to know more about, I would urge you to, to find someone you came with, find someone else in the room, and we would be glad to speak to you more about it. Unlike Jonah, we would, we would party at, at the repentance of one sinner, let alone 120,000. Join me in prayer. God, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for this, that you preserved this account for us, that you've kept it for us to, to see ourselves in, Lord, and more importantly, to see you, to see your faithfulness, to see your love, to see your determination to save whom you will and your effectiveness in doing it, Lord. I pray that you'd help us uh, see ourselves where we should, Lord. I pray that you would soften our hearts, help us lower that inner defense attorney, Lord, and, and be willing to look at ourselves honestly. And then, Lord, quickly look to you and your sacrifice and find it sufficient and beautiful and glorious. Help us remember that when we stumble, that you delight in steadfast love. Not our steadfast love, but your steadfast love. That not one of us will be taken from your hand, Lord, that it's secure in you. Lord, your will will be done. And we thank you for that. Amen.